made in the UK for MSPs around the world. This is Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Do you know this podcast has gone so quickly? We've made it through to episode 21, and this is what's coming up in today's show. How can I look at extracting sales from the business so the business is actually worth more without them? We're also going to be looking at how to overcome objections at sales meetings and answering a question for an MSP, should you or should you not be doing Google adverts? Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. One of the downsides of running your own business is that it's very easy to lose the bigger picture. You can have really, really busy days and weeks, but you can get to the end of them and sort of ask yourself, have we, have we made any money this week? Are the clients happy this week? Are the, are the staff happy this week? Are we doing better this week as a business than we were last week? And there comes a point in everyone's business ownership career where they look to put in place KPIs. They're a bit jargony KPIs, but they stand for Key Performance Indicators. And you might choose to put them together in a dashboard or just in a spreadsheet or even just on a scrap of paper on your desk. You remember paper, don't you? So 2004, it really is. But the point of KPIs is that they give you a visual indicator of what's happening within the business and therefore what the trends are in the business. Because you see, KPIs aren't just about the snapshot of what's happening now. It's what's happening over a period of time. What's going up? What's improving? What's getting worse? What's going down? Which are the areas that you need to focus your valuable management attention on? Because you can't be on top of everything all of the time. So the KPIs, particularly when married up to a really visually easy to read dashboard, make it easy for you to know where you should be spending time, what's broken, what's soon going to be broken, or what's just generally a bit lackluster right now. Now, I have had many conversations with my MSP masterminders in the UK over a period of time about which KPIs that they should be tracking. And I've got a list here, well, two lists for you, really. One of them is a list of tech KPIs, and then the second one is a list of management KPIs. Now, caveat to this, as I've said many times on this podcast, I'm not a technician. I love technology, but I'm not a technician. So this tech one is not going to be a particularly exhaustive list, but it's certainly got things such as billable hours. How many hours are you billing out right now? SLAs, how close have you come to breaching SLAs if you've got service level agreements? You should certainly be tracking the number of tickets opened and the number of tickets closed and also the average ticket length, because the average ticket length is an indicator of quality and also probably customer satisfaction, which is also one of the technology KPIs that you should be tracking. Now, there are lots of different ways to do these. If you've got a good uh, PSA, then you should be able to extract this data out of them easily. A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I had on um, Joe Pannone from CW Dash, which is a free dashboard which links into ConnectWise and does exactly this. It extracts out information out of ConnectWise and shows you a dashboard. You've got Bright Gauge, which, of course, is owned by ConnectWise now. And there are various other dashboards that you can find. It's fairly easy to present the information if you can get the information out. Oh, you've got to make sure the information's good quality as well, because there is a phrase, isn't there, which is crap in, crap out. So if you're going to be tracking things Things like billable hours or tickets opened and closed. You've got to make sure, in fact, there's got to be a culture within the business of your technicians tracking data properly. Because if they're not tracking data properly, you know, if they're not billing the hours properly, if they're not managing the tickets properly, then you're going to get a skewed picture from your KPIs. 
The customer satisfaction one, by the way, there are things like customer thermometer that you can use to just get a, if you like, a thumbs up or a smiley face from your clients. Uh, and some of the PSAs have their own versions of that. It's certainly worth just tracking to see, again, trending over time, how happy or unhappy are your clients? How is that changing over a period of time? And then we get into the sort of the management ones. Now, with the management ones, I'd be looking to track the number of new leads new leads coming to the business. So a lead isn't necessarily a prospect. A lead, like someone joining your email database or maybe even connecting to you on LinkedIn. So how many leads are you generating and how many prospects are you generating? The prospect is where someone puts their hand up, where a lead puts their hand up and says, can we have a conversation, please? And you actually start talking to them about their specific circumstances. That's the difference between leads and prospects. And you need to be tracking both. Because you might only get one or two new prospects a week, but you potentially could get 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 100 new leads a week. Next, you should be looking at the number of new sales appointments and not just the number of sales appointments, because someone could have three sales appointments in the same week with the same prospect. That doesn't really count. But what are the number of new ones that we're starting? What's our lead to prospect to appointment conversion rate? In the business that I sold, it was a marketing business I sold four years ago. We knew exactly what our conversion rate was from the number of new leads joining the database to the number of sales meetings that we had to the number of new clients. And I can't remember what those are off the top of my head, but we worked that out over a number of years and they were fairly consistent figures. And by tracking those figures every single week, we were able to see A, if the system was broken in some way, because typically when the figures changed quite dramatically and quite suddenly, it meant that someone somewhere was not following the system that was laid out. But also it allowed us to know with confidence, if we spend £1,000 on lead generation, we know exactly how much revenue and therefore gross profit and potentially net profit that can turn into. So that's definitely something you'd want to track those conversion rates. Then you've got your sales conversion rate, which is all part of the same thing. You definitely want to track your monthly recurring revenue because that is the dream goal for every MSP is to grow the monthly recurring revenue. So track it. Let's see it in your dashboard. What about monthly recurring revenue per user per month? So this actually gives you a quality score across the whole business. If you're supporting, let's say, a thousand users and you're generating, I don't know, £10,000 worth of monthly recurring revenue, then that's £10 MRR per user per month. And again, over a period of time, that could become a KPI that you're focusing on. How do we grow our MRR, our monthly recurring revenue per user per month? That's where you'd use things like the profit matrix to go out and sell more to your existing clients. In fact, it will motivate you to do so because you will make more money this way and you'll know from the figure that it's going up. Uh, you could measure an upselling rate, again, for each client, how much you're growing their business every year. Upselling isn't so much about hardcore selling. It's about finding opportunities, finding things that your clients might want or need or that might remove some fear for them and just putting it in front of them in the right way. And some of them will go on to buy some of those things. You should definitely be tracking your net profit percentage. So net profit is the bottom line of the accounts. It's the money that's yours. It's, it goes to the owners. You just have to pay the tax on it, sure. But one of the main goals of the business is to generate enough net profit to keep your interest over a long period of time. And we've all of us have run businesses that don't make money. And it's not fun. It's not fun doing that at all. So you should be absolutely tracking your net profit percentage. The percentage, again, is a, is a quality score and what's happening to that month by month, year by year. 
And then the final one I think you should be tracking is staff satisfaction. Now, there are lots of different ways of measuring staff satisfaction. You just have a good Google search to figure that out. But you might get them to put scores together in appraisals or in reviews or something like that. The more you can track how satisfied your staff are, the earlier the warning signals will be when things are going wrong. Because you will have key members of your team that you would be gutted if they left. You maybe have other members of the team you're not so bothered about. But if you're tracking whether it's individual or whether it's team staff satisfaction, it gives you an indicator of how am I doing as a boss? How are we doing as a business making this a great place to work? As I said, this is not an exhaustive list, but certainly if I owned an MSP, these are some of the KPIs that I would be tracking. Here's this week's clever idea. We don't talk a lot about actual sales meetings on this podcast because my experience with most MSPs is that once you've got the sales meeting, you go and do your magic. Most MSP owners are pretty good at selling because they talk with passion and with vigor and with interest about how technology can solve their potential clients' problems. But it is worth us, I think, just having a look at objections. Now, objections at sales meetings are, I believe, the prospect telling you they haven't yet got all of the information that they need to make a decision, be that cognitive information or emotional information. Because of course, most of the people that you're meeting are making the decision emotionally. They're making the decision with their heart and then they're rubber stamping it with their brain. So with objections, I always think there's a four step process that you can use to overcome objections. The first of them is to listen fully to that objection. You've got to ask them because the temptation is to jump in. (laughs) Someone says, ah, but what about blah, 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 blah. And the temptation is to jump in and just try and kill it dead and answer it. And actually, what I think you should do is you should take time to listen to the objection properly. You should explore the objection. You should ask questions. What, how questions, not why questions, because why questions can come across as defensive. But what does that look like? How do you think that would affect the business? What is it about that that concerns you? Those kind of things. You need to make sure that you understand the objection completely. And that's about exploring it properly with them. It's about um, finding, I mean, asking them for examples. Most objections come out of previous experiences or lack of experience. So you've got to quite understand, is this because of something that's happened to them in the past? Or is this because they haven't got something to compare this against? And only after you've uncovered all of those objections can you respond properly. Now, you have to look at the objections and respond to the biggest things first. Resolving objections and responding properly isn't about being defensive. It isn't about just being dismissive. If they've got an objection, it's a real thing to them. To you, it might be nothing because you know it's not a big deal at all. But to them, it's big and it's everything. So you've got to throw out the evidence. You've got to give them the emotional evidence that they need that this is not a problem. You've got to back that up with some cognitive evidence. You mustn't be swayed by the fact you know it's not a big deal because if it's a big deal for them, it could potentially kill your sale. And by the way, you've got to do all this without talking for 20 minutes because long-winded responses just seem really insincere. And then once you've done that, I think you've got to confirm that you satisfy their objection. So that's about testing it. It's about asking them, what do you believe about that? How do you feel about that? What do you think should happen from there? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I have to give a shout out to uh, one of the MSPs that I know, uh, Anthony Thackray, who came up with an amazing question to pull up all the objections in a meeting. It's uh, something that you use towards the sort of the back end of the sales meeting when you believe that the client is on board. uh, And this is the question. What's standing in the way of us being your IT partner? 
Let me say that again because it is a great one. What's standing in the way of us being your IT partner? That, I believe, is the ultimate objection identifying question. What's standing in the way of us being your IT partner? Because they have to put on the table everything that potentially bothers them about working with you. Why don't you try it at the next sales meeting you do? Paul's blatant plug. Far too many MSPs really struggle with their marketing, which is crazy because there's so much help out there to help you with your marketing. Now, one of the big challenges is to build a relationship with prospects before the point that they are ready to have a serious conversation with you about switching from their incumbent to you. And this is where my service, the MSP Marketing Edge, comes in. Because what we do is we give you a whole bunch of stuff, marketing content that you can use on all of your marketing channels. Uh, so basically, you don't have to write it. You don't have to think of it. You don't have to create it and you can use it. Now, only one MSP per area can use this. So as you can see, there's no clash. It's not that two or three MSPs will use it. No one in competition with you will use it so long as they're in your area. So we're talking every single month, you get a brand new guide, you get a video, uh, you get some social media content, you get promotional emails, you get a press release, you get a sales letter. There's a whole bunch of premium stuff in there as well. There's a Have I Been Pwned plugin you can put on your website. There's a book that you can brand up as your own. And we're adding a whole series of other things as we come into the spring and the summer to make that even more value, but we're not putting the price up. So it's called the MSP Marketing Edge. And the very first thing to do is to go onto the website and check to see if your area is still available. So if you go onto mspmarketingedge.com, and there's a UK site and a US site, so you pick the site. Now in the UK, you then go in and put in your postcode and it'll tell you whether or not your area is available. In the States, same thing, it's just it's your zip code and it'll tell you if your area is available. And then we offer a trial from there. So your first month in the UK, it costs you one pound plus VAT. In the States, it costs you absolutely nothing. Of course, you have to lodge your payment details. And if after the month you haven't cancelled, of course, it will turn into a paid subscription. But it's not a huge amount of money. In the UK, it's £99 plus VAT per month. And in the States, it's just $129 per month. So we've deliberately made this very low cost, very easy. And it's all about you being able to do something and get your marketing done every month without a great deal of hassle. So go and have a look, mspmarketingedge.com. The Big Interview. Hi, my name's Richard Turb, and I help the owners of IT businesses to free up their time, concentrate on what's important, and essentially to make more money. Who doesn't want a piece of that, that's for sure. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, we had on the podcast a guy called Jonathan Jay, who's a good friend of mine, and he talked about growing your business through acquisition mm. and how you can grow so much faster just by buying someone else's business than trying to organically grow your own. And it's led on to a number of questions, Richard, which I can't answer, and I think you're the man that can answer those. Essentially, how do you value an MSP business. So is it done yeah. through multiples of EBITDA? And if you could explain what EBITDA is, that would be great. Or is it done through something to do with recurring revenue? Sure. Okay. So when it comes to valuing a MSP business in the UK, as it stands today, I'm afraid I'm not going to make myself very popular here, Paul. Um, but the reality is that you are typically looking around one times recurring revenue as the valuation. So to give an example there, if you've got an MSP business and you are doing 500K um, a year and the majority of that is recurring revenue, your business is roughly 
going to be valued at 500k there and thereabouts now before i can i can almost hear your listeners jumping out of their seats and ready to throttle me around the throat and saying but i've spoken to my accountant and my accountant says i can get between three and a half and five times revenue or um any other fancy calculation if you can get that valuation for your business Good luck to you, I say. I'm not dismissing the fact that some people uh, might be able to get that there in exceptional circumstances. But every single one of the merger acquisitions that I've been a part of over the past few years in the UK, it is all boiled down to the buyout will be prepared to pay around one times the recurring revenue over an annual basis. So that is, you know, we can talk about EBITDA and all of those things, Paul, but when it comes down to it, real world valuation, one times recurring revenue annually. So that's really interesting to hear um, because, I mean, I've, I've sold a business and I got three times EBITDA. I know you've sold a, you sold an MSP business, obviously, which is a, a different thing. And you mentioned about the accountant. And well, it's the first thing we do, isn't it? When we're going to sell our business, we ring up our accountant and we say, hey, what's my business worth? And we always think the accountants are experts at this, but sometimes the accountants are making it up to a certain extent. And when I say making it up, I mean, they're, they're just falling back on standard valuation. So it's really interesting to hear from you that, that one times recurring revenue is, is, is considered the fee. Yeah. And, and I would say in, in sort of accountant's defense, and you know, you've already sort of spelled it out a little bit there, they go with what they know. And the vast, vast majority of accountants are not used to valuing IT businesses, or indeed, I should say, service uh, businesses. You know, they tend to value retail businesses and, and, and other things like that. So I'm not saying that, you know, what they're telling you is wrong, but for the IT industry, um, what I see out there in the real world is that buyers are only prepared to, t- to pay one times recurring revenue. Um, but again, going back to what I said earlier, if, if you can find a buyer who is, you know, if you've got a unique bits business and the buyer is prepared to pay more, more power to you, go for it. But uh, the reason I say, I, I suspect many of your listeners will jump out of the chair and be ready to throttle me is that it's a bit heartbreaking, isn't it, Paul, when, you know, you've built up a business and then the reality is it isn't going to be, you know, um, worth millions uh, and it isn't going to be your meal ticket out of there. And that's the reality of the situation that we live in, unfortunately. And I'm happy to uh, to get feedback from your listeners if anybody absolutely vehemently disagrees with me, but that's the deals that I'm seeing out there in the UK. Well, as you and I have said before, when we've met up um, or when we've we've chatted, because I don't think we've actually physically met. Richard. Do you know what? I don't think we have. I don't before. think we have. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you're, a, you're a mate, and we talk about Doctor Who all the time. We've never met, so. Um, we, as we've we've said before on, on on calls and stuff, the business is as you can say it's worth one times recurring revenue. But as you just alluded to, there, it's worth what the buyer will will spend on it. Exactly. And yeah. when I sold my marketing business uh, back in 2016, that was one of the first things that my broker said to me, which is, "Well, look." This is what we think it's worth. This is the range we think we can get for it. But ultimately, if the only person that offers you money will pay half that, that's what the business is worth. That's what the market has decided the business is worth. Yeah. And you, you must know quite a few people who've, who've either bought businesses or sold businesses. And do you find that, that quite often it is a surprising figure that they either receive or that they, they end up paying for that business? It is. And it can be, you know, not, not to be negative about this, Paul, because I've known lots of small MSPs who have sold their business and been very happy with what they've got. Um, you know, it can be life-changing uh, sums of money for them, but it's always the case that it's never, you know, a ridiculous sum of money. And um, we're not talking Google, we're not talking Facebook here with, you know, uh, absolutely uh, billions and multiple times revenue and, and, and things like that. It just doesn't seem to work that way. The business is worth 
what somebody in the market will pay for it, what a buyer will pay for it. And there's, um, I, I should actually go on and say that I've seen lots of deals done at the small end of the market. And when I talk about the small end of the market, I'm talking about sort of uh, below 5 million uh, turnover, um, where the business owner is sort of, inextricably linked with the business, which is a challenge. Um, so if the business can't run without the business owner, if the business owner is either a single point of failure within that business or is linked to some processes or the relationships linked to the business owner, that becomes a challenge in itself because, you know, essentially buyers want to buy, you know, your client book, your intellectual property, and they're not really looking to bring on um, you know, the existing business owner within the business. So that might be another challenge for, for listeners uh, of your podcast. How can they look at extracting sales from the business so the business is actually worth more without them? That's a really interesting point. Before I ask my final question, Richard, I, I did promise at the beginning of the interview we'd explain what EBITDA was. And um, <laughs> can you hear the thuds of people's bodies falling to the ground as we do an accounting term? So EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. And put another way, it's the term that accountants use for normalized net profit. So you take whatever net profit you've got now, and you bought a television last year, which accidentally ended up in your house rather than in your business, but that was a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars or whatsoever. Well, that, that would go back on your net profit because it's a one-off cost. So training, you know, flying across the world to go to conferences, all of those things are considered one-off costs and go back on. In the scenario you just talked about there, Richard, where the, the business owner is inextricably linked with the business, um, that money would come off the net profit. Because if to replace you as the business owner would cost me let's say £40,000 or $40,000 a year, then that would come off the net profit. And EBITDA is a, is a figure which is, which is normally argued between accountants. I think when selling an IT business, if they're valued at one time's recurring revenue, it's almost an irrelevant figure. If any of your listeners are thinking and saying, I've heard of EBITDA, but I don't really know what it is, and you've just given a, a fantastic explanation, well, I should say to your listeners, you're not alone. Because I don't fully understand the ins and out of it. And I built and sold an MSP business. What I would say is when it reached the point where we did start to go into the nitty gritty of the figures and that, I reached out to an external consultant who helped me to understand these things and helped me organize the books in the way that a buyer would want to see them. So we as MSPs are very used to talking to our clients about outsourcing the things that they're not good at or they don't want to do. When it comes to selling a business or even valuing a business, I would argue that we need to take our own advice. We need to step out and reach out to somebody who has got experience in valuing IT businesses, so that may not be your accountants, um, and who can explain, here's the things you need to do to put your business into a sellable state. Because I can tell you from experience, you've got a figure in your head of what your business is worth. I have probably just rained on your parade when I've talked about the one times recurring revenue. But when you actually speak to a buyer, prepare for it to get much, much more aggressive because the potential buyer will pull any and everything out that they think can devalue the business because they want to pay as little as possible. So my advice for listeners would be reach out, seek somebody who's got experience with helping put your business into a sellable state for all of the reasons that we've just talked about. Get external help for it because it really is money well spent. What should we be doing to make the business worth more? So obviously adding in more monthly recurring revenue, but you, you've been there, you've hired a consultant. What would yeah. you do to that business to make it worth more when it came to exit? 
Well, I'll bring out one of the ones that I get asked about all the time, and that's, is a business worth more if it's got long-term contracts? I would say the rational way of exploring that is yes. If you've got long-term contracts with clients, it's worth more. However, I'm the exception to the rule, and that my MSP business only had 30-day contracts. We uh, actually used it as a selling point. We said we lived or died by the service that we provided to customers, and I managed to sell my business. And so that's the exception to the rule there. But for the most part, I think buyers are looking for sort of 12 month plus contracts there. The other big thing that I would say is, you know, I've just mentioned intellectual property, which it's one of those words. It's a little bit like EBITDA. People throw it around, but not really sure what it means. Well, intellectual property for MSPs is the systems, the processes and the documentation of your business. What if you were to be extracted from your business, if you were to get rid of all of the staff within your business and to bring in other people to run that business, are there the instructions, are there the standard operating procedures, are there the checklists, are there the documentation for the client sites to enable somebody with the uh, necessary technical skills to step in and to run your business? That's what's valuable about your business because I've seen lots of MSPs who have gone through mergers, and I'm doing the uh, quote signs above, uh, above my head while we're saying that. It's typically where a bigger business buys a smaller business and merges them in. And the biggest challenge with those type of mergers is the two cultures coming together because businesses do things in different ways. And so most of those mergers at the smaller ends of the market I've seen have turned into an absolute nightmare for the buyer because the other business doesn't tend to have standard operating procedures, checklists, and documentation. They just do things the way they've always done them. (laughs) And that's very difficult to scale. That's very difficult to hand off to other people. So in answer to your question, you know, how can you increase the value of the business? Contracts, certainly, but intellectual property, documentation processes, checklists, talking yourself out of the business, essentially, that's what's going to increase the value of your business to a potential buyer which ironically is also a way to give yourself a business that gives you a better lifestyle and requires less of your time to run it. Indeed. Yeah, it's amazing that the two outcomes are completely different and yet the the process to get there is exactly the same. I had no intentions of selling my MSP business. And then a life event happens to me, I don't mind sharing with you, but it was actually my dad passed away. You know, it was a a ripe old age, he was 82 years of age. But it was one of those life events uh, that happens, Paul, that causes you to take stock and say, what do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do with my life? And after his funeral, suddenly everything changed for me. But the interesting thing was, I built a business that was scalable. I built a business that could run without me. And so I was in a position to make the sale of the business fairly quickly. So even if you're not thinking about selling the business or you think I'm going to do this till the day I retire, there is no downside whatsoever from building that intellectual property, from getting your business into a state where it can run without you because it gives you options. And that's certainly the case for me. Richard, what's the best way for us to find out more about you and get in touch with you? The best way to to stay in touch with what I do is to grab my weekly MSP Insights email. So if you go to tublog.co.uk forward slash NL for newsletter, uh, you can sign up there and all of my contact details are on the website as well. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Ask Paul anything. My name is Steve from CCSIT. Should I be doing ads on Google? Great question, Stephen. Thank you. And actually a surprisingly hard one to answer. Because if you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, let's say back in 2010, the answer would have been, 
Absolutely, you've got to because that's where the easy traffic is. That's where the easy money is to be paid. But here now in 2020, things are not quite as clear cut as that because you can make money and quite good money off Google Ads, but it's certainly not as easy or as profitable as it used to be. So let me explain some context. If you go back 25 years, back to 1995, which makes me feel old, and you think about marketing back then, it was very wasteful. You know, it was lots of, you had to spend a lot of money without really knowing what was working. And then Google came along and it was the first sort of en masse search engine. And it was the first one to introduce en masse the technology of matching up people who had something to sell to people who wanted to buy that thing. And that's what Google Ads is. And it only came around about 1999. And back then, you know, you were paying a penny per click, one or two pence per click. The cost per click was absolutely tiny. And then what happened is the cost per click started to go up and Google started to make a series of changes. And we get to today where the ads look pretty much exactly the same as organic listings, apart from a tiny little green thing that says ad, which most people don't see. Um, the ads get a huge amount of uh, clicks because they are dominant, especially on mobile phones. They, they dominate the, the real estate of the screen and there are fewer ads than there've ever been. Do you remember when there used to be like four or five at the top and then others down the side and others at the the bottom all of that's gone now uh, we've just got the ones up at the top and the cost per click is huge you know in areas some areas you can be paying 30 40 50 pounds or dollars per click and so your cash cost of using Google Ads is fairly high. Saying that, however, the concept still stands that Google is putting you in front of people who are looking for someone like you. So I think if you were going to use Google AdWords to try to find MSP clients, it's probably a no which is a very strange thing for me to say because actually an MSP client can be worth 10, 20,000 pounds or dollars a year. And so let's say you have to pay 500 pounds to win a $10,000 client. That's, I mean, that's a great return on investment and everyone would do that every day. But here's the thing, to get someone as an MSP client, I believe you have to build a relationship with them first. We all know that when someone switches MSPs, there's a huge amount of fear involved because the risk is that you destroy their business, that you get their technology wrong. And that's why they have to have a relationship with you before they're willing to switch. I don't think you can build that relationship off traffic from Google. So I think if you're going to do Google Ads, what you should be doing is focusing on the people who've got an immediate need and problem now. And that could be please help us for this, but it could be a laptop repair, or it could be a printer problem, or it could be some kind of technology problem that they need some help with now. And I think if you can get those people and get them to make some kind of commitment to use you for a repair or a fix, and then use that not for that ad hoc revenue, because no one wants that ad hoc revenue, but use it as a lead generation tool, as a relationship starter, then that can lead to you then going and having proper conversations with these prospects, with these new clients, sitting down, maybe even doing audits with them, and ultimately looking at switching them over to MSP. I've got about two, maybe three clients that are using Google Ads and and they're happy enough that they stick with it uh, week in, week out. There are a couple of other people I'm aware of in my MSP marketing Facebook group who, again, are spending money on, on Google Ads. Uh, there's a figure they reckon in all the clicks spend, uh, it was costing them three grand to get a client, but the clients were coming in at £10,000 a year or whatever, whatever those figures were. So again, there's a good return on investment, particularly since you do keep clients for years and years and years. My most successful client in terms of Google Ads put himself through a Udemy course 
That's U-D-E-M-Y.com. It's a training course. And it was a 25-hour course. If you type Google Ads into Udemy, it's the one that comes up at the top. It's 25 hours. Um, just make sure you pay no more than about $30 for it because the price does vary depending on which browser you go in and how often you visit Udemy. Uh, but he put himself through that course and he optimized his Google Ads account in ways that even I have no idea some of the things that he was doing. It's fairly impressive what he's done. So I think if you're going to do something like that, you either get an expert to do it for you or you do that yourself. You train yourself and you teach yourself the best way to do it. But ultimately, you've got to have that mindset of it's going to cost me a couple of thousand pounds or dollars to get a new client. And that might just be for a piece of one off work. Uh, that's only the start of it. I've then got to do the hard relationship building. Not as easy as it was 10 years ago and certainly not easy now, but it is potentially something to throw into your marketing arsenal. How to contribute to the show. Good or bad, I'd love to know what you think of the show. Why don't you drop me an email? It's hello at paulgreensmspmarketing.com or why not come and join me in my Facebook group? Just go onto your Facebook app, type in MSP Marketing up at the top, go onto groups and I'll see you there. Coming up next week. We often get contacted by people completely out of the blue. Sometimes when you talk to them, it's a case of you've never listened to what we do. That's Tara Dolby. She works for the BBC here in the UK as a producer and she'll be telling you next week how to get the media interested in featuring your MSP in stories on radio and in newspapers. We're also going to be looking at something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It explains how the business suffers when you're tired and grumpy. And I'm going to be answering a question from an MSP about a wonderful marketing concept called authority sites. I'll explain exactly what those are and everything else in next week's show. Made in the UK for MSPs around the world. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast.